In the name of the greatest people that have ever trod this earth, I draw the line in the dust and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny, and I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of campaign curiosities. I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. Those were the famous words of Alabama Governor George Wallace the day he was inaugurated in 1963, five years before he became the most successful third-party candidate in the last 100 years. You'll hear his name, you've heard his name a lot in the age of Trump. Like Trump, Wallace was a nationalist outsider promising a restoration of real America, suspicious of both parties and handy with quick and easy solutions if only the clueless people in charge had a little common sense. He promised to bring that common sense. He perfected the art of sounding the racial dog whistle, though in his case, he played something more like a racial pan flute. He was a virtuoso. He keyed on white fears of blacks in the South and the North with jeremades against crime, communism, and unelected judges. Other national politicians would follow that path explicitly and implicitly for the next 40 years. We'll have the Wallace story from 1968 in a moment, but first a word from our sponsor. Sponsor today is Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper's mattress is a -a one-of-a-kind new hybrid that combines premium latex foam with memory foam. Mattresses can cost well over $1,500, but a Casper mattress costs between $500 for a twin-sized, $750 for a full-sized, $850 for a queen-sized, and $950 for a king-sized mattress. Try sleeping in a Casper for 100 days with painless returns. They're made in America, too. You get 50 bucks towards any mattress purchased by visiting casper.com slash whistlestop and using the promo code whistlestop. Terms and conditions apply. Our whistle stop today is November 4th, 1967. We're in Long Island Beach, California. Alabama Governor George C. Wallace is fulminating. He's a balled-up fist of a man with black caterpillar eyebrows applied to a face that looks like an angry parsnip. He fulminates when he isn't even talking his deep-set black eyes narrowing in on some dispute through a squint. Or when he's not fulminating, he's getting ready to, husbanding grievances. He has the best grievance garden of any modern politician. He tends it in quiet while other men sleep, and then he takes clippings to feed his entertaining sessions. He snips off sprigs of insult from one branch, a slight from another, and sprinkles dashes of affrontery to common rudeness into his entertaining rambles of complaint. His usual fare is about 30 minutes of railing against the asinine Supreme Court and the pointy-handed intellectuals in Washington, foreign aid, open housing, pseudo-intellectual professors, rioters, anarchists, communists, the left-wing press, and the world generally that is arrayed against the average working man. Wallace says he is sick and tired of big government telling us when to get up and when to go to sleep. The rally is interrupted with shouts of, Sieg Heil! Those people are shouted down by people saying, We want Wallace! After a long while, the protesters are walked out and the crowd sings a chorus of America. This is familiar at Wallace rallies. It happens at nearly every one. The former governor is on his last day of a several weeks long campaign swing through the state on his quixotic effort to place his name on the ballot for the 1968 general election as the standard bearer of the American Independent Party. 
His political road show starts at 8 a.m. and continues to 11 p.m. It begins with a warm-up of country music, and then actor Chill Wills, a gravelly-voiced Western movie actor, takes the stage to promote the candidate. But not for too long, because while Mr. Wills' occasional tearful exhortations in favor of the candidate are moving, they are also a sign that he is fully in the bag, up to his earlobes in drink, and very likely to tumble over. Asked to sign an autograph by a mother for her son, he asked once, so what's the little bastard's name? Day after day, Wallace harangues and tours. Harangues and tours, writes Drew Pearson and Jack Anderson in the Washington Post. Stand up for America is Wallace's message, and who could disagree with that? But getting the 66,059 signatures required to elbow his way onto the California ballot is a big task. It requires finding voters who are registered to one of the two parties and getting them to switch their registrations. Every registration form has to be executed in the presence of a person designated by county election officials as a deputy registrar of voters. Anyone who signs is aligning themselves with a party that has no national or local status, no elected or selected leaders, and no actual platform. California was just the jurisdiction with the earliest legal deadline by which ballot qualification had to be achieved for the 1968 presidential election. If Wallace could make it there, it would help his efforts in all other 49 states. But he wasn't doing so well in 1967, in part because the state election officials weren't really helping him with the complex business of getting those 66,000 signatures to get him on the ballot. Deadline for securing the registration was January 2nd, 1968. Working for Wallace in California was a transplanted Alabama team. They were all brought from the home country, a group of irregulars of about 50 in number. They were irregulars because it is irregular to have members of the state legislature working to get you on the ballot in another state. Wallace's floor leader in the Alabama State Senate was leading his registration drive in Orange County. The state superintendent of banks was running the Sacramento area effort. Wallace's wife, Lurleen, was the governor at the time. He'd orchestrated her installment in the post of governor after his terms. She ran, letting everyone know that he'd be her number one advisor. And she was only too happy to tell reporters that while state officials had said they were on vacation doing all this work for Wallace in California, she thought, no, they were working because it was part of their job to help her husband because that was something they all believed in. There were also a scattering of Alabama businessmen in shirt sleeves and black glasses whose ventures were regulated by the same state administration that Governor Wallace's Lurleen was the head of. Wallace also had help of John Birchers and conspiracists and generally extravagant people that the candidate, even himself, called nuts and kooks. For some, Ronald Reagan, the conservative Ronald Reagan of California, wasn't conservative enough. They complained that he signed a bill plotted by the Communist Party, providing for bilingual instruction for Mexican-American children. If you, quote, do not sneer at patriotism, columnist Carl Greenberg wrote of one of these Wallace supporters, then that Wallace supporter asked you join him in backing Wallace because Reagan is taking the country down the road to slavery. Dan Carter, in his wonderful book, Politics of Rage, about Wallace, tells the story of a local California volunteer who said he would be unavailable to work for Wallace on the weekend in the campaign in California because he'd be tied up with maneuvers. Asked if it was the National Guard he would be maneuvering with, he said, no, we've got our own group. And he lifted a tarp in the back of his truck and exposed a cache of weaponry. Are you worried about the communist takeover, he was asked. Hell no, he said. The Rockefeller interests. You know, the Trilateral Commission. That's what we're worried about. 
On December 28th, the Los Angeles Times carried a banner front page headline in its preview edition that proclaimed, Wallace does it. Party registration may hit 75,000. The actual registration total exceeded 100,000. California poll took a survey of Wallace's supporters at the time and reported, quote, his appeal is closely proportionate among presently registered California Democrats and Republicans. The California victory gave inspiration to Wallace supporters throughout the country and in 1969, building on the California Foundation, Wallace was able to qualify his presidential candidacy in every state in the union. There are two parts to the George Wallace story, what he did in the 1968 race and the grooves his candidacy left behind that other candidates followed. What Wallace did in 1968 is simple enough to describe. He got 10 million votes, 23% of the total, and won five southern states to get 46 electoral votes. He appealed to voter anger and frustration in all parts of the country, not just in the South. Anger about the pace of cultural change, the urban riots, the muddle in Vietnam, and the feeling that the federal government alternatively didn't have a handle on what to do, or if it did have a handle, it was a handle on the spoon with which they were trying to force you to take their dumb, blunt medicine. The legacy of the Wallace campaign is one we wrestle with today. When Bill Clinton defends his 1994 crime bill, he is in part defending himself against the charge that he talked about law and order as a candidate to appeal to white voters worried about the black inner city. When Donald Trump talks about illegal immigrants killing young white women, he is doing more than just talking about crime, say his detractors. He's making a large Wallace-like appeal to the proportion of the electorate that doesn't like people with the skin of a different color, thinks they're all menacing, think they should all be locked out. Wallace came to power with the adamant help of people who were committed avowed racists. The Klan, the White Citizens Councils, the Liberty Lobby, and other groups founded around segregation or racial hatred. They worked for him, and in some cases he attended their rallies, though not a Klan rally. But he said he wasn't a racist. He was standing up for America, quoting founders and appealing to voters' proper and deeply ingrained skepticism about a big federal government. Wallace presented the electorate, the press, and politicians with a dilemma. While he may have been a racist, did that make his supporters racists? If you agreed with what he was saying on Vietnam or about communists, or even if he spoke to your fears about riots in the streets, did that mean you were signing up for his view that people with black skin should be separate in America because they were of inferior makeup and character? Wallace voters didn't believe everything Wallace did. The fact that he was supported by the most loathsome bigots that ever wriggled out of the ooze didn't condemn those voters who simply thought the federal government went too far, forcing states to change their ways. But he created a link between those voters, which meant any other politician who wanted to appeal to the less objectionable group was nevertheless playing footsie with the more objectionable one. If Wallace knew exactly what he was doing, the question was whether Richard Nixon did in 1968 or Ronald Reagan did in 1980 when he touched on some of these groups and themes. Now Donald Trump has brought a new urgency to the age-old question that I've just described, retweeting support for his campaign from avowed white supremacists when he was slow to condemn groups aligned with the KKK, Republicans in Washington blanched. They saw a familiar pattern. There are a lot of Wallace and Trump comparisons, mostly surrounding the nationalistic pitch each of them makes to an angry electorate, and the appeal to a traditional American way of life that is under threat. If Wallace's case is under threat from the advancing blacks who are either physically advancing in menace through riots or through the busing laws of the federal government, that are changing around the way people's children go to school. In Trump's case, it's the Mexicans and the Muslim immigrants that are the invading horde that need to be stopped. Stand Up for America is not that different than Make America Great Again, though 
the Wallace slogan does imply a force that must be deployed against a malevolent invasion. Trump's slogan does not have any of that in it. Wallace was prized for his candor and his lack of political correctness, which is exactly what people say today about Donald Trump. You don't have to worry about figuring out where he stands, said one Youngstown steel worker. He tells it like it is. He's talking about Wallace there. Like Trump, Wallace was written off. Then he came out of nowhere telling the nation something about itself. Quote, Wallace almost single-handedly alerted the national custodians to a massive, unsuspected, unanswered constituency, a great submerged continent of discontent, wrote Marshall Frady in his tidy and delightful book, Wallace, the classic portrait of Alabama Governor George Wallace. Maybe the country hadn't progressed as far as it thought it had in 1967, and 64, for that matter, when Wallace first ran. And thank goodness it hadn't progressed as far, said some, because what some people think is progress is eroding our values and our customs, and the people who are driving this crazy change don't know what they're doing. But there are differences between Trump and Wallace. When Wallace's 1968 campaign was over, he'd drawn people from both parties to his cause, 10 million of them all over the country. So far, Donald Trump has just won contests within his own party, more than 8 million voters, to be sure. But he's not yet a national political victor. The polls, in, in fact, suggest that his national appeal is seriously limited. Seven in ten voters disapprove of him. Some people mistakenly suggest that Donald Trump helped the news media discover anger in the American electorate. Well, that's goofy. The Tea Party movement, which we've been covering for quite some time, was not built on fellow feeling and placid agreement. What is singular about Trump is that he would be the choice for the angry electorate, since some of us had thought that the trait that that electorate wanted was constancy in their leaders, and it was the inconstancy of politicians that drove them mad. But no one has been more inconstant. No one has changed positions more than Donald Trump. That's the surprise. By the time Wallace had been collecting signatures in 1967, he'd been 10 years into a climb to be the nation's most prominent opponent of forced integration. Trump was indeed America's chief birther, raising unfounded questions about Barack Obama's birth, as a way to delegitimize the African-American president. But George Wallace was an actual combatant with the federal government. In 1959, Wallace refused to cooperate with the Civil Rights Commission designed to investigate voting rights abuses. He made his stand in the schoolhouse door on the 11th of June in 1963 at the University of Alabama, temporarily blocking the admissions of two black students who had legally enrolled in the school. And although uh, Wallace soon backed down, footage of the event was broadcast all over national television. On March 7th, Bloody Sunday, voting rights advocates attempted to march from Selma to the state capitol. Wallace had tried to prevent the march by calling out the highway patrol. State troopers held back the marchers with tear gas, clubs, and extreme violence. He was enough of a national figure, Wallace was, that by 1964, when he entered the Democratic primaries, he did surprisingly well getting 34% of the vote in Wisconsin, 30% in Indiana, and 45% in Maryland. The Watts riots in 1965 are considered the start of the period of civil unrest around poverty, inequality, and racial discrimination that marked the back half of the 1960s. Kicked off by a police incident, the outbreak of violence led to 34 deaths. The conditions that had led to that outburst were exacerbated by passage in 1964 in November of Proposition 14, on the California ballot overturning the Rumford Fair Housing Act, which established equality of opportunity for black homeowners. In 1969, riots in Detroit and Newark flared. In Newark, in five days, 26 people were killed. In Detroit, 43 had died. George Romney, the governor of Michigan, had called out the National Guard. 
Those riots caused George Romney to go on what was called the ghetto tour, which was the topic of one of our earlier whistle stops. Remember how Lyndon Johnson's strategists called urban unrest and March's Goldwater rallies in 1964 because they feared the backlash would lead whites to support Goldwater? Well, that's what was happening with Wallace. Quote, no one doubts that Wallace had more than a mere notion of running, wrote Roy Wilkins in the L.A. Times on August 14, 1967. But his little helpers, the rioters and looters, in Madison Avenue language, have, quote, finalized his decision. William S. White wrote in the Washington Post in July of 1967, Wallace was in a fair way to cut deeply into traditional Democratic low-income white wards in the North because it is these whites who are more intimately touched by integrated housing and who are in job competition with the Negroes. The Newarks are now immensely sharpening those Negro poor white abrasions And it is obvious that many angry white laborers are turning from their old association with the Democrats towards Wallace in fear and frustration. Samuel Lubell pointed out that Wallace's support among northern voters was strongest in white neighborhoods that abutted heavily black districts. In Alabama, Wallace attended meetings by the Citizens' Councils and the Liberty Lobby, easily recognizable racist organizations, when he lost his run for governor in 1958, he concluded that his opponents had been more effective in playing on racial fears and appearing a stronger segregationist than he had. And in a famous quote, using the most objectionable language possible, he vowed that he would never let that happen again. On September 27, 1968, George Romney said Wallace was, quote, a builder of hate. And at a news conference, he charged that Wallace was building his entire campaign on prejudice. Yet on the stump, Wallace insisted he was not a racist. At nearly every stop, he noted that he'd never referred to people by the color of their skin, and he actively resisted that characterization. Here's a representative passage. I want to say this about race tonight, because each place that I go, I'm asked that question, and I think that this will suffice. I have never in my life made a statement or a speech that reflected upon anybody because of race, color, creed, religion, or national origin. And I don't intend to do so tonight. While Wallace did not make overt racial appeals, he spoke in a coded language that let voters know that he understood their race-based fears. It was like the code in the tiny Confederate flags that waved at his rallies. He was not the first to do this, but he was very good at it. Race was his subtext, and he created an appealing text around the issues of busing, schooling, federal overreach, anti-elitism, and anti-communism. Wallace constantly talked about defending the integrity of neighborhoods and neighborhood schools, says Dan Carter. Knowing that everyone was aware he was talking about white neighborhoods or defending white schools, in his campaign advertisements about busing, a load of white children disappear on the back of a bus to some other neighborhood, presumably a black one. Small businesses in the advertisement are looted. And then listen to this trade message that sounds familiar. Here's a Wallace ad which starts with that image of the back of a yellow school bus. Why are more and more millions of Americans turning to Governor Wallace? Follow as your children are bussed across town. As president, I shall, within the law, turn back to absolute control of the public school systems to the people of the respective states. Why are more and more millions of Americans turning to Governor Wallace? Open a little business and see what might happen. 
president, I will stand up for your local police and firemen in protecting your safety and property. Why are more and more millions of Americans turning to Governor Wallace? Watch your hard-earned tax dollars sail away to anti-American countries. As president, I will halt the giveaway of your American dollars and products to those nations that aid our enemies. Wallace has the courage to stand up for America. Give him your support. Wallace drew lines with his rhetoric so that it was absolutely clear which side the blacks were on and which side was for the whites. Wallace said that if policemen could run this country for about two years, they'd straighten it out. What gave him cover is that Wallace had plenty of other targets other than African Americans who were looting the big cities. The hippies and the anarchists were his other targets. Here he is talking about some protesters blocking the president's limousine. A group of anarchists lay down in front of his automobile and threaten his personal safety, the president of the United States. Well, I want to tell you, if you would elect me the president, and I go to California, or I come to Arkansas, and some of them lie down in front of my automobile, it'll be the last thing they'll ever want to lie down in front of. A former Alabama senator told Wallace biographer Marshall Frady, quote, it's conceivable that he could win a state like Illinois or even California when he puts the hay down where the goats can get at it. He can use all the other issues, law and order, running your own schools, protecting property rights, and never mention race. But people will know he's telling them, a nigger's trying to get your job, trying to move into your neighborhood. What Wallace is doing is talking to them in a kind of shorthand, a kind of code, unquote. Dan Carter also quotes NBC's Douglas Kiker, a native Southerner, who says, George Wallace had seemingly looked out upon those white Americans north of Alabama and suddenly been awakened by a blinding vision. They all hate black people, all of them. They're all afraid, all of them. Great God, that's it. They're all Southerner. The whole United States is Southern. The cartoonists and television comedy shows had a field day with Wallace. On Laugh-In, they said, George Wallace, your sheets are ready. In a Herblock cartoon, a tailor hems the long coat of a man wearing a Ku Klux Klan hood. On the coat is written law and order talk. But the hem of the Ku Klux Klan uniform underneath isn't totally covered by the coat, and shown on the white sheet beneath is written racism. The fellow has a top hat that reads states' rights, the top hat covering the, the hood. L.A. Times wrote in an editorial, Wallace denies that he is a racist or that he would run as a racist candidate. His talking points for the last four years have been opposition to big government. But while he has tried to embrace several issues, there is no doubt that Wallace's primary targets are those federal laws, action, and court decisions which have worked against segregation in the South. Wallace's forte, however, disguised in rhetoric, is to play upon the fears, frustrations, and bigotry of the discontented and the ignorant. Teddy White records a sign, some signs that he saw in Chicago as he traveled around with Wallace, and these signs spoke to the emotions that he aroused. The signs read, Worked to buy my house, George. Protect our home. News media unfair. Law and Wallace. Wallace, Daly, and the police. America, love it or leave it. Wallace remembers the Pueblo. Have our schools been sold to the government? Polish want Wallace. Italian power for Wallace. Wallace, friend of the working man. Voters ring the bell of liberty with Wallace. Give America back to the people. Vote Wallace. And man, was Wallace hard to pin down. This might sound familiar in terms of trying to pin down a candidate. Here's Wallace on a show we like to call Face the Nation. Governor, 
You've promised a number of times in the course of your speeches to call out 30,000 troops, as you put it, if that's what's needed to make the streets of Washington safe. Is that right, sir? I've said in my speeches, if that's what it takes, that's what I'll do. Call out. Okay. Uh, when you cannot... Now, what, may I ask you just this, Governor? What would you need, do you think, to make the streets of Birmingham safe? The streets of Birmingham are safe. You can walk on any street in Birmingham without fear of physical molestation, and you cannot do it in Washington. Now, if you're trying to get to the high crime rate in Alabama, is that what you're getting at? We do have a high crime rate, and I'm sorry that we do have a lot of violence among Negro citizens against well, Governor, each other. Let's take a look but at on that the crime streets, rate. You can walk safely in Birmingham. Martin, just Governor, Governor, but aren't you saying, in effect, that white people can walk safe on the streets of Birmingham, but Negroes no, cannot? Sir. But, Mr. Benton, I'm sorry that we have to bring race into this. It seems like that... Well, you brought it up, sir. You brought it up. No, no I didn't, didn't bring it up. You, 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 brought brought it, you said that the crime about Negro, Negro crime. You folks started off questioning a moment ago yeah. involving race. And every time I get on these programs, and I can talk about... I talk about crime, not about race, policy Taxes you and those things. But the crime rate in our state is higher than it ordinarily would be. And I don't know why it is, and I hope someday that we can find out and, and have a solution. But 900,000 Negro citizens in our state, and I do not mean to reflect upon people because of color at all, but the crime rate among them against each other, crimes of violence, uh, of assault and murder, is astronomically high. Now, I don't know why that is. I don't know why Negro citizens attack and assault one another. Are you saying it's only Negro no. citizens, Governor? I mean, Sir, is that your point? Am I saying what? That it's only Negro citizens? You keep I'm coming saying back that the high Negro crime citizens. rate comes about because of the high uh, predominance uh, among Negro citizens against each other. Uh -huh. And that is an absolute fact. I was a judge for six years in Alabama, and I know, and uh, everyone else in Alabama knows. And so I hope someday we can find the solution. But this doesn't come on the streets. It's not a matter of safety on the streets. It's crime among uh, the black citizens of our state against each other. And they themselves, many of their leaders are concerned about it and have talked about it. And they've uh, talked about the court should be stricter uh, in the enforcement of the law and as far as punishment is concerned. Governor, aren't and you... And I hope that comes about Governor, because I would like to see that diminish. Governor, aren't you really coming to this, and if I'm understanding you correctly... Aren't you really saying that you can make safe, as Mr. Benton pointed out, the streets for white people, but you don't know no, why you can't make I'm them safe for Negroes? I, a crime on the street, you walking down the street and being assaulted, mugged on the street and robbed on the street, mm -hmm. is entirely different from a crime that takes place in a nightclub, uh, takes place in a home, uh, takes place in a meeting house, uh, takes place at a gambling game. And I think everybody that's watching this telecast knows uh, that that is the case. We're not talking about crime on the street. Well, We're I can't break it down. Crime rate in Birmingham. We're talking about crime that occurs on Saturday nights mm -hmm. uh, at meetings frequent, frequented by people mostly uh, of one race. And right, uh, the streets of Birmingham are safe. You've Governor, been to Birmingham, Mr. Can we change the subject? Well, I've street. been to Washington, too, and but I've never been assaulted. Many places, either. though, you don't walk in Governor, Washington. Governor, you're a great believer. Places, uh, if you ever do walk in Washington, you will be Governor, assaulted. I walk everywhere in Washington. I've never been assaulted. Well, if you, if Governor you, Wallace, if you walked every place in Washington and find every place safe in Washington, you are the only person that has ever walked every place in Washington and found it safe. Okay, Why Governor. is the crime rate so high? Governor, that was Martin Negronsky trying to get to the bottom of things with Governor Wallace.
Wallace's states' rights argument rested first on constitutional grounds. He liked Goldwater before him and others who opposed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And the Voting Rights Act of 1965 did so on the grounds that it was not within the proper power of the central government to compel states to run their domestic institutions in some particular fashion. In Virginia, Wallace made the case quoting the state's most revered founder. We are defending the right of the people of Virginia and of Alabama to decide some questions for themselves. And if you folks who have had some liberals to tell you about the Constitution, let me suggest that you go to your library and you read the debates in the Constitutional Convention of the state of Virginia. And you read the debates in the Constitutional Convention of the state of New York and of New Hampshire and of the original 13 states. And you will find that not a single one of the states wanted to come into the Union until first they were guaranteed that we were going to have a government of limited powers, that all powers not delegated to the government expressly would be lodged and kept with the people of Virginia and of New York and of New Jersey. And in the debates in New Jersey and New York, they said, we've got particular and peculiar problems in New York and we want the right to determine those ourselves. And so they wouldn't even come into the Union until first they agreed to put the first 10 amendments in the Constitution. And so those in the Constitutional Conventions sound exactly like we in Alabama sound and sound exactly like many of you who are here today sound and are completely foreign in their attitude to those today who are interpreting the Constitution of our country. There was another cultural prong to Wallace's attack on the federal civil rights mandates, which was that Wallace's attack was on the overeducated ivory tower folks with pointy heads. He delighted, Wallace did, in dancing on the pointy-headed professors who couldn't park their bicycles straight. He applied the label to intellectual types lacking in common sense, especially the bureaucrats in Washington. So the pointy-headed bureaucrat, that's Wallace we have to thank for that, pointy-headed bureaucrat being a phrase that we still use today. He loved locking arms with the common man, Wallace did. He told the Virginia Polytechnic Institute audience that he had more faith in taxi drivers to know what was right for the country than he did in the elite cult of theoreticians that he said ran the country. On foreign policy, he said even the rednecks had enough sense to know, quote, the Castro and Mao Zedong were communists when the theoreticians were praising them as agrarian reformers. This led to a very Trump-like conflict with pollsters and polls. On the one hand, polls were a sign of Wallace's popular appeal. On the other hand, pollsters were vermin. Here's from the New York Times, quote, Mr. Wallace repeatedly contends that the Gallup poll now shows him heading all other presidential candidates in 13 of 50 states. This is not precisely correct. The poll indicated he was the most popular presidential candidate in 13 southern states taken as a group, but not that he would carry each of those states. Wallace often talked about himself in the way Donald Trump does when he said, I was applauded 27 times when I spoke at Dartmouth College. He noted that in a speech as a sign of the adulation given to him even in the quarters of the ivory towers up in, in Dartmouth. But then, of course, there were the pollsters he didn't like. Quote, they lie when they poll, he said. They are trying to forge public opinion in the country and professional polls are owned by Eastern moneyed interests and they lie. They're trying to rig an election. Wallace met opposition at nearly every rally. At one, a long-haired student in faded dungarees and sandals held up a sign reading, Support Mental Illness, Wallace for President. Protests in Ohio, there were a thousand blacks, and anyone with long hair or an African-American who was casually dressed kept from going inside the Wallace rally. Outside, placards read, If you like Hitler, you'll love Wallace. 
and Wallace is Rosemary's baby. Protesters held their arms out, forming a Nazi salute. Chairs were thrown, punches too. African-Americans were holding up signs that said, Black Power and the world is watching. People wore sheets and paper bags over their heads. And Wallace often delighted in these confrontations. He promised to sign the sandals of the hippie protesters. He said they looked lovely. And then he mock-corrected myself. Oh, I see you're a he and not a she. Unlike Humphrey and Nixon, Wallace wanted these hecklers in the audience because the bearded peaceniks were just the kind of opponents he wanted viewers to see on TV. This is a key distinction with Trump. Trump, they are vermin that must be exposed and expelled. There's a tissue rejection at Trump rallies of the protesters. But for Wallace, it was show and tell. Here's how he dealt with them. And let me say to you about the Republicans who have come to your state and said we want to defeat... Well, I want to say this much. Let me say this much. Any of you anarchists in Georgia or California, wherever you happen to be, you better have your day now because after November 5th, you are through in this country, I get it? Wallace said there wasn't a dime's worth of difference between the Republicans and the Democrats on major issues. He called the Republican Party and Democrats tweedledee and tweedledum. His political pamphlets educated people that all he needed was a plurality of electoral votes, not a majority. And as a political matter, George Wallace's biggest threat was to Nixon. He posed a threat to Republicans in the South. He undercut Nixon's Southern strategy, which was essentially that angry Democratic white voters would side with him because they were still so pissed off at Johnson for signing the Civil Rights Act. But with Wallace in the race, those voters Nixon had been counting on had another person they could follow. Two big issues of their combat between Nixon and Wallace were integration and law and order. Wallace denounced the Supreme Court's 1954 decision outlawing racial segregation in the nation's public schools. Nixon accepted the decision, but objected to the measures taken by the Johnson administration to encourage integration. On law and order, the two pretty much saw eye to eye, though Wallace spoke more crudely about it than Nixon did. And he also liked to tweak Nixon for being late to the party. I was the first one to speak out on law and order. Wallace complained at one point, now they're using our phrase. This might sound familiar to anyone who's been listening to Donald Trump, who says the same thing about building a wall or immigration. He says he was the first one to talk about it. Now every other candidate talks about building a wall. The trick was for Nixon to sap Wallace's strength without actually directly antagonizing the Wallace voters. Therefore, the strategy in the block of states in the South was to say that a vote for Wallace was a wasted vote, or worse, that it might help elect Humphrey by denying Nixon the electoral majority. Conservatives also said Wallace wasn't really likely to curb government spending. He, it was This is an attack that's also used against Donald Trump, that he supported, among other things, Wallace did, an expansion of Social Security payments, 100% tax deduction for drugs and medical expenses for older people. A poll by Human Events of Conservatives found almost unanimous opposition to Wallace on conservative grounds. But Wallace wasn't just a threat to Republicans. He competed with Humphrey in the northern industrial cities, because of blue-collar workers, normally, who were normally Democrats, who were fed up with the noisy marches and the demonstrations and the vehement anti-American language of, of dissident white pointy heads. The new left college students and the militant blacks protesting the Vietnam War and racism and poverty in the nation, they didn't like any of that. Wallace never had a shot at the presidency, but he did have a shot at chaos. The strategy was not to win, but to rob both Democrats and Republicans of the electoral votes required so that he could be a kingmaker if the election was thrown into the House of Representatives for the first time in 144 years. He could dictate to either candidate, if you support me on the following issues, I'll deliver you the presidency. Wallace was doing well in the polls, and you could tell it in other ways, too. Nixon and Humphrey stressed 
law and order issues so much that the San Francisco mayor finally concluded none of the candidates is running for president. They're all running for sheriff. On the Republican side, Wallace created a new language of politics, allowing politicians, mostly Republicans at this point, to make the message in a respectful way to win over Southern white voters. And by the end of August, he had a commanding lead in the South, and he trailed Nixon narrowly in the, in the remainder of the states around the region. So Nixon brought in Spiro Agnew on the ticket, who soon began sounding like a, a kind of copy or a clone of George Wallace, using that same language trick. The trick for candidates who hoped to benefit from the Wallace factor was to exploit the grievances he stoked while not touching up against the racism at the heart of his message. So Nixon was caught doing this at the Republican convention in 1968 when he beat out Ronald Reagan for the affection of the Southern delegates. In one meeting with the Southern delegation that Dan Carter recounts in his book, Nixon showed how he could do his own version of the Wallace treatment. Without ever explicitly renouncing his own past support for desegregation, he managed to convey to his listeners the sense that he wouldn't do very much in the way of carrying out any of these mandates of the federal courts on this integration stuff. The reason that we know this, that history knows this, is because the Miami Herald had, had a uh, member of the Florida delegation carry in a concealed tape recorder. Nixon said that he would not, quote, satisfy some professional civil rights group or something like that. The chaos and violence of 1968 in the summer only served to help Wallace. Within days after the assassination of Robert Kennedy, the polling response to Wallace began to rise. And with the violence in the Chicago Convention in 1968, the Democratic Convention, and there was another jump. So he was at 9%, Wallace was, in April and May. Then he moved to 16% in June, 21% in mid-September. If that kept up, he was going to be at 30% by voting day. That 30% for George Wallace would bring absolute chaos because if he reached that point, no candidate would have a majority and zip into the House it would go. First time in 140 years, lots of chaos. But just as Wallace was reaching the kind of top of his game, three things collaborated to sap him of his strength. First was the organized effort by unions to halt his progress in the North. Then it was basically just the accretion of chaos at his rallies. And finally, the selection of his vice presidential running mate, Curtis LeMay. All three conspired to put the brakes on. So by late October, his poll numbers had already dropped to 15% of the vote. And the union pushback, labor rallied to stop Wallace from taking advantage of what the papers had been calling in his rise, the quote-unquote white backlash. And labor did this by sending out 16 million flyers in states like Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, California. George Wallace could cost you $1,000 a year, said one of the flyers, arguing that Alabama's average income was $1,000 under the national average. The flyers also pointed out that Alabama's unemployment rate was higher than the national average. Another flyer included graphic pictures of riots in the South and asked, quote, do you want police dog, billy club, and firebomb law and order? Another flyer said Wallace had, quote, no programs other than racism. In the early fall, the working men outside the South were persuaded to be suspicious of Wallace, which is amazing because Wallace was such a champion of the working man and the, the blue-collar middle class. Let's lay it on the line, Hubert Humphrey said in Detroit. George Wallace's pitch is racism. If you want to feel damn mean and ornery, find some other way to do it, but don't sacrifice your country. George Wallace has been engaged in union busting wherever he's had the chance, and any union man who votes for him is not a good union man. So saith Hubert Humphrey. It's not entirely clear how much the union pushback worked, or I should say what sliver of the problems that Wallace encountered was a result of this 16 million mailers. Most accounts say it did matter, but the funny thing about that is that at the time, the pundits thought that Wallace was impervious, 
It is not an issues movement, wrote Max Lerner in the Los Angeles Times, except for the one overarching law and order issue. Instead, it is a mood movement. Its mood is one of overwhelming protest and rage, curiously vigilantist, despite its law and order rhetoric. That is why it cannot be fought, as trade union leaders are trying to fight it, by focusing on bread and butter arguments. Since it is an irrational movement of recoil and fears, it cannot be met by appeals to reason. This sounds, of course, like the analysis of the Trump group, but that didn't turn out to be true given that union households were pushed back with this bread and butter argument made by the unions. This punditry does, though, sound like a lot of what we read today, which is that white working class voters supporting Trump don't know their own economic self-interest. They're simply voting on hate and non-reasoning cultural issues. Towards the end of the campaign, violence flared nearly everywhere. Wallace went, much of it triggered by the candidate himself, who taunted hecklers. At Madison Square Garden, 3,500 police were required to keep peace. He'd welcomed the protesters, wrote the Chicago Tribune, quote, believing their presence will bring him votes from fed-up Americans. But then his rallies devolved into shouting matches. The heckling that attended these rallies became progressively more crazy and insane, and it was basically starting to turn off moderate voters. The third and final problem for Wallace was his running mate. On the 3rd of October, Wallace announced that Air Force Chief of Staff and Head of Strategic Command Curtis LeMay was going to be his running mate. It was a calamitous decision. LeMay was the model for the deranged General Ripper in Dr. Strangelove, distrustful of civilian authorities and quick on the issue of bombing to solve problems. At a joint press conference with LeMay, whose nickname was Old Iron Pants in Pittsburgh, Wallace tried repeatedly to shut up LeMay as he rambled on about using nuclear weapons in Vietnam and elsewhere when necessary. Afterwards, someone in the Wallace camp told LeMay, keep your bowels open and your mouth shut. After the press conference, Wallace and LeMay were referred to as the Bomzy twins for LeMay's suggestion that nuclear weaponry might be useful in a pinch. Marshall Frady describes the press conference in which Wallace appeared with his running mate as, quote, the ponderous debacle of selecting General Curtis LeMay as his running mate, the general being about as politically graceful as an irate rhino in a game of ice hockey. Teddy White wrote, but from the first week in October and the choice of Curtis LeMay, every poll, every sampling, even the very spirit of the Wallace campaign appeared to change. Down he went, gurgling, first in the Harris poll, then in the Gallup poll, followed by every other index, until finally, election day. In the end, George Wallace's message was simple, short and clear. He was telling the people that their government had sold them out. You hear a version of this message today with Donald Trump, but it's not as precise as Wallace made it. There was an intellectual tradition that Wallace was accessing. States' rights as linked as it was to providing a veneer to cover racism was in fact connected to a set of ideas that were at the heart of the American experiment. Donald Trump does not advocate for a certain set of ideas, or more precisely, he advocates for states' rights on one issue, education and abortion, but believes in an activist federal government when it comes to any issue that suits his purpose, whether it's eminent domain or national security or restrictions on free speech. Either way, both men were talking about alienation, the old faith that America was a community and that government served that community but had been destroyed, that the government no longer served the interests of the people and therefore the government must be ignored, seized from the incompetent and compelled to work. Our producer here at Whistle Stop is Mike Buolo. Our executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Whistle Stop is a part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. 
Our whistle-stop crackerjack researcher is Brian Rosenwald. He's no pointy-headed intellectual. He's a true gem. Sponsor today is Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price to get 50 bucks towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash whistlestop and using the promo code whistlestop. Leave a review on the iTunes store under Whistlestop. It helps us spread the word. Thanks so much for listening. I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. I'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. 